Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 255, my conversation with current adjunct instructor of percussion at Oklahoma University, current doctoral student at the University of Michigan, drum major, member of Catch-22 Percussion Duo, and founder of the Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History Consortium, Emily Salgado. We'll get to her shortly. But first up, Bandcamp. As I record this, we are fully involved in the Marching Mizzou Bandcamp. We're very excited for our season as we are able to be in person and performing as an entire group this year. Something we were not able to do at all last year, unsurprisingly. This afternoon, we had our entire forces together for the first time since 2019, and it was great to have everyone back together again. I'm really looking forward to an active but very fun season all around. Wasn't that exciting news? Right? I know! All right, let's get to Emily Salgado. I was happy that Emily was up for the conversation. I found her story and her interests fascinating and worth checking out. As mentioned, Emily is about to begin teaching at OU in an adjunct role and is finishing up her DMA at Michigan. She's been heavily involved in chamber and concert percussion, as well as the marching world. Her creation of the Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History Consortium Project is really important, and as she states in the interview here, it is likely she is still seeking consortium members, and you can seek her out for that. We get to all that, along with her work on the PAS Diversity Alliance, her middle school and high school athletic career, her love of dachshunds, and many more subjects in this interview. So let's get to it. We recorded this over Zoom on August 9th, 2021, and it begins right now. So, Emily, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities as they are right now. I am recently just took um, an adjunct teaching position um, at the University of Oklahoma um, with Dr. Andrew Richardson. Um, I'm incredibly excited for this upcoming year um, and my responsibility. So we're going to share all of the undergraduate lessons from sophomore through senior. Um, so Andrew and I will teach those 30 minutes um, a week. And then I'm also teaching a, uh, a drum set class that's open to anyone within uh, the university, which is cool. I'm excited about that. Um, and then I'm also leading the Brazilian ensemble, um, which is fun. This will be their second year. Um, so that'll be a lot of, uh, that'll be a lot of fun. And I'm really excited to use the things that I did, um, through our, uh, Samba group at, uh, Michigan with, uh, the students at Oklahoma, which is really exciting. But, um, as of right now, that's what, uh, this upcoming school year looks like. Because this is an adjunct position, how did you even know about it being available? Sure. So I remember um, I got an email from my professor sometime maybe a couple months ago. At um, Michigan? 
Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. Doug Perkins. Um, yep. And uh, he was like, hey, um, the professor at Oklahoma has a position open. You should apply for it. And I was like, okay, sure. Um, and didn't know what would come of it and did the interview, went through the process and got offered the job. So I'm really excited. All right. So that's true. I get uh-huh. that. But were you looking for for something to do? Like, what was what were where were you at in your studies at this point? Yeah, so I'm going into my last year of my doctorate at UMich, um, and the way that Michigan structures it, uh, you get all of your coursework done in the first two years, um, and then in the last year, all you have to do is give your three dissertation recitals, at least as a performance major. Um, so it's it purposefully is structured that way, so that in your last year, if you get offered a, a job like this, you can take it, which is nice. Um, and I, I'm going to give two out of my three recitals at Oklahoma, and then one of them I'm, I'm going to give at uh, Michigan just because of logistical sides of things with people playing with me and other things like that. But um, so, yeah, I, I wasn't looking for a job by any means. I was I would love to have a job, um, but I definitely wasn't looking for one. And it came out of kind of came out of right field. And I was like, all right. I mean, I, I guess let's let's throw my name in the hat. Let's see what happens. So, yeah, um, I'm very, uh, very thankful for it. Very, very thankful for it. Your plan at Michigan, is it typical in terms of because I can't remember. I've had other Michigan people, but I don't know if I've had Michigan people who have been there recently uh, on the show. And I, I, so I'm curious, is the plan for you to do like a certain amount of recitals? Are there various options that you have as a doctoral student for the capstone portion of your degree? Yeah. So you, um, you have the option of three different types of recitals, a lecture recital, a chamber recital, and a solo recital. Um, and you can do a number of them. Um, you can do all three if you'd like. I'm doing all three. Um, so like I'm giving my lecture recital in October and then my chamber recital, which will be the one in Ann Arbor in January and then my solo recital in April. Um, and that's, uh, that's kind of their way as a performance major, at least that's your way of, of not getting around writing a document. Um, but it's, it's just an alternative to writing a document. I, I do have to write program notes that are a little lengthier than you, a typical recital would be. And that's kind of the culmination of, of what my document will be. So that'll be maybe, I don't even know, like five pages as opposed to like, you know, 50 pages or, or something along those lines. Do you have a focus for your lecture recital? I um, am a percussionist by day and a drum major by night. So I like to, um, uh, a second part of, of kind of who I am is definitely in the marching arts. Um, and for me, I marched with Carolina Crown in 2015 and 16. I was one of their drum majors and conducting has always been a big portion for me and just student leadership and all those sorts of things. But, um, I wanted to kind of marry those two worlds, um, together a little bit. And it's coming into culmination at my lecture recital where I'm basically asking the question is marching band, relevant and important for undergraduate students to participate in. Um, And for me, when I was in undergrad, I, as a music ed major, I had to be in marching band for four years. Um, So marching band was a big part of my, of my career, but thinking of, of other students maybe who aren't music ed majors, maybe performance majors, theory majors, comp majors, therapy, anything along those lines. Um, 
thinking about, you know, is it actually an important thing for them to participate in? Um, is it, is it worth their time? What are they going to learn from it? Um, you know, are those skills that are actually going to be relevant to their careers? Um, all of those sorts of questions. So um, I'm answering that by going through the lineage of uh, marching, mar- the marching arts. Um, so thinking um, specifically starting with um, uh, military bands and kind of, you know, the culmination, the culmination of where rudimental drumming came from. And then going all the way up until, you know, present day with um, DCI and uh, BOA, Bands of America, with for high schoolers and even WGI looking at uh, not just, you know, um, marching percussion, but also marching band in general, color guard, indoor winds, now that that's starting to, to become a little bit more of a thing. So, um, and then the playing portion. So that'll be the lecture portion of it. Um, and then the playing portion of it will be, um, I'll start with um, just like rudimental snare books um, mm-hmm. that started way back when, all the way up until um, like J- like Joe Tompkins books, yeah, yeah. Um, his most recent one. So um, I'm going to play all the way through a bunch of books for all of that and basically trying to show how really it hasn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I think, I think that the marching arts are, are something that I, I, I want students to participate in. I'm not going to force them to participate in it, but I think you learn, like for me, I learned how to be a person by participating in marching band. And, and I think it also helped me uh, develop a lot of coordination skills that I wouldn't have been able to develop um, in maybe other forms. I think the thing that's closest in percussion to to coordination building sorts of things is drum set. Um, and I would say that's, it's very different than, than marching band, but, um, anyway, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what the lecture recital looks like. That'll be, um, October 16th, um, which is coming up faster than I (laughs) anticipated. Um, but I'm really excited about that. So, yeah. It feels like the thesis of this, uh, of your lecture, it doesn't sound like it's, like it's necessarily a, a conflict. I'm not thinking of the right word. It doesn't seem controversial. Yeah. But it sounds like you've had interactions where that have led you to say, I actually need to make this case. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because um, there are definitely, I feel like there are definitely some schools of thought um, just in music in general, where some people see marching band as maybe too much of a time constraint, um, maybe it can. Um, well, that's but, but that's that's because frequently it, it is a massive time right. constraint. Yeah, it totally is. It totally is. And and for me, like thinking about the people that come and say that it is a time constraint, I come back with, well, yeah, but it also teaches you how to 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 manage your time. You know, for me, thinking back at, at Furman, I had to be in four ensembles, you know, some semesters at a time. And, and I had to I also had classes. I also had full workloads. I was in lessons like, you know, all of this stuff. And, and it forced me to figure out how to to manage my time, how to use a schedule, how to, you know, take care of myself in the midst of all of those sorts of things. And there are definitely other activities that force you to do that, like sports, chamber groups, you know, whatever. Um, but the marching arts were just a way for me to figure that out. That was just for me. It's interesting the the way that you phrase this, and I don't know if this is just because of, of where of your of your experience so far, but you're mm-hmm. phrasing this as, you know, your drum major portion 
Mm-hmm. And you're not, although you're not using the term band directing. Mm-hmm. Is that intentional? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because I think, because I don't, you know, I'm not going to just have students that want to be band directors, sure. right? I can definitely help cater to them just as much as I can a performance major, right? So I think that's why I want it to be more open-ended, more inclusive, not so, so focused. Um, because I'm not going to teach just music ed majors. I'm going to have all types of students, non-majors, music minors, anything and everything. So I'm going to backtrack a sec to uh, okay. a little bit of your doctorate because mm-hmm. I feel like I, this this part, I, I, I feel like I've been told about Michigan, which is that you're not doing recitals or at least recitals that count those first two years. Is that right? That's correct. Uh-huh. And that's intentional? Love, yeah. So I can, I can apply to have, like, if I do a really big recital and for them, they, like, in our handbook or whatever, they say, like, if you give a recital at Carnegie Hall, like, that's kind of the level of recital that they would count for one of your dissertation recitals. Um, but, yeah, so, like, I gave a recital. <laughs> I gave a freshman DMA recital at the end of last semester with one of the freshmen in the studio and it was fun and he learned how to put on a recital and everything Mm -hmm. involved with that so um but yeah so most of the time if you do give a performance um if it's big enough you could apply for it to count um but most of the time it's it's just for fun or reps or something oh yeah 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 exactly but what about Carnahan Hall would that will that count and it's not in New York City. It's in um, it's in Mount Pleasant. Is that a problem? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just depend on what the graduate school says. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who knows? They might go. I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I made it up. But yeah, um, but yeah, Mount yeah. Pleasant is a real place and. Yeah. Michigan. <laughs> oh, okay. I was thinking Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. I'm from South Carolina, oh, okay. so that's where my brain went. I oh, like, I see. Oh, Mount Pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> Are there many places called Mount in South Carolina? It would seem uh, like it would be a low. It would be a low number. The only one I know of is Mount Pleasant, but I feel like there's there are definitely lots of. I well, I also so I grew up in. I went to school in South Carolina, and that's where I call home. But I grew up in Asheville, mm-hmm. so mountains are very much very much home and, and thinking about all of that sort of stuff. But I only know of one city with the name Mount in it in South Carolina. Mm. Another thing that you're, you're currently doing is your, uh, your duo. Uh-huh. That you, uh, and can you talk a little bit about, about that, the formation of that and what you're all up to? Yeah, sure. So uh, my duo partner Lainey Malden. She teaches adjunct at Clemson University with Paul Beyer. Um, So we met actually through my student teaching. Um, So I student taught at a high school in Pickens, South Carolina. It was like 45 minutes from Furman. Mm -hmm. Um, And we met uh, there where she was the percussion instructor. So she would teach lessons during um, the school year, during the day. And then she would work with the marching band after school and help with concert festival and in the spring. Um, So that's where we met. And um, I didn't meet her until after I graduated from it. And then the band director kept me on to teach marching band for uh, band camp. Um, And 
really quickly. Um, we realized that we were very similar. <laughs> our personalities are very similar. Our uh, senses of humor are very similar, all those sorts of things. Our passions for, um, for music and uh, realized really quickly that we enjoyed working together. Um, and then randomly, I remember one day, um, I, I think I like texted her out of the blue or something like that. And I was like, hey, you want to start a percussion duo? And she was like, oh my gosh, I was actually thinking about that the other day. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so we're like, okay, great. And that's kind of where Catch-22 came from. Um, and then the name actually came from, we were <laughs> we were driving, we should really come up with a better story, but it's actually came from a sign for a bail bonds company. <laughs> And we That's just, cool. <laughs> it so happened to like, I think we were like on the phone or something talking about like band camp things. And we were both driving and I was like, huh. And she was like, what? And I was like, I just saw a sign with a cool name on it. And I was like, yeah, it, it was like catch 22 or something like that. And she was like, oh my gosh, I just passed that too. And I was like, okay, well, I guess that's the name. Cause we, we were thinking about trying to come up with a name, but anyway, should really come up with a cooler, a cooler story, but you know, bail bond sign. Bail bonds. Um, that's, I mean, it's unusual. It is. The coolness is, uh, we'll figure that out. Later. <laughs> right, right. That's kind of where the duo came from. The kind of like mission vision of the duo itself um, is being able to bring music to to other people and making it more accessible. Um, and that's kind of where the Trevino Project came out of. Um, and basically, the so the Trevino Project has been an ongoing um, multi-year recording project where, um, for us thinking about, you know, the first couple of pieces we wanted to play, we're like, okay, great. If we're thinking about accessibility, Ivan's music, um, is a very approachable, you know, style in which he writes. It's very tonal, it's groovy, you know, it's not hard for someone who isn't super in depth and, and trained in music to understand. Um, and, uh, we were like, oh, okay, great. So like looking up reference recordings for all of his pieces, we were having a hard time finding consistent ones, um, either by the same person or that was well done or um, ones that, you know, was easy for us to, to really grasp onto a little bit. So that's kind of where this project came out of was we want to make reference recordings, um, audio and video that can be put into this sort of database for students to be able to at any age, because I see high schoolers all the way up through college students playing his music, um, being able to use his, these recordings um, to be able to, you know, either teach it if they're going to, you know, coach it, the piece or something like that, or for themselves to study it and, and to perform it. Um, so that's where the Trevino project kind of came out of. And that's where our um, connection with our audio recording team um, came from my friend, uh, Mary Lindsay, who went to Furman with me. Um, and then she went and got her master's in audio engineering at Belmont. Um, she just graduated. Then our videographer, um, Dylan Holzheimer, um, who was a student of Laney's at uh, Clemson. Um, and now he's currently working in Pennsylvania. Um, he is our kind of videographer. And those two um, have helped us make and produce uh, our, our videos that we have so far. We only have two, um, but uh, posted on our YouTube page, but we'll have two more hopefully coming out soon. Um, and they were the ones that kind of helped us start this like self production, um, uh, team, which was, which was great. And we were able to use the facilities at Clemson and, and their instruments and so thankful to, to Dr. Byer for, for all of that. 
um, space and instrument wise. But, um, but yeah, so right now we, um, uh, my chamber recital, speaking of my, speaking of duo, um, my chamber recital is going to be an entire duo concert. Um, so I'm playing with two of my friends who are still going to be up here in Michigan. Um, and then I'm going to play, uh, the other half of the concert with Lainey. Um, and we are going to premiere two pieces that we commissioned by, um, two of my friends from Florida state. I did my master's at Florida state, um, Isaac Barzo and Cameron Brown. Um, so we're going to premiere those two pieces on my chamber recital in January. So that's been the most recent thing with that. Um, but COVID has kind of, um, put a, uh, not a damper, but kind of put a pause button on, on the projects that we were working on. But, um, but those are the two latest things were just those two commissions last year. How much do you actually get to see or play with each other? I mean, I know COVID yes, but I'm talking about like the distance part too. Basically, the duo started when I went to FSU. So we've always been like in a different state. Um, and then I moved up to Michigan and she's just been in South Carolina. So we've had to um, definitely get creative with how to rehearse together. And it's been a lot of sending each other like small segments of, of pieces that we're working on. So like the most recent one that we're uh, working on right now is Table Talk. Um, and so she sent me a small chunk of a, of a part of that piece and I play along with that recording in my ears. Um, a lot of times we'll like set a metronome as we play along, just so we know like where we are timeline wise with, with getting the piece up to where it needs to be slash where we want it to be. So it's been a lot of thinking creatively, but also a lot of communication um, and making sure that we are on the same page um, a lot of the time. So we like to check in maybe once a month, something like that, given our schedules. The summer, it was a little bit easier. We were able to talk a little bit more frequently, but, but yeah, so it's been, it's been definitely different, um, but uh, not impossible, um, which is something that we like to tell, like if we give master classes, that's something we like to tell young students is, you know, it's still possible to play together. And I think we know that even more now being in this past year with the pandemic and, and having to think creatively, like, um, how do we, how do we make music together virtually? Um, that's, I mean, that's essentially the life that we lived, you know? So I think, um, this pandemic has been great to help, um, to help us realize how we can truly use technology. Um, and it just reinforced the things that we were already doing, which is nice. Um, and yeah, something we like to tell young students, it's, it's definitely possible. You know, you don't have to be in the same state. You don't have to go to the same school. True. I mean, Escape 10 is, is, has right. shown that to be the case. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And they were huge inspirations for us. Um, and, and one of the, one of the big reasons why we did, um, especially, you know, them being a, uh, a female percussion duo, it like for us, it was like, yeah, like that's a no brainer. Why not? You know, um, it's, uh, you know, equity and, and representation is something that's really important to us. So just wanted to, to help contribute to that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Now, have you have either of you read Catch Twenty Two? Oh, like the book? Is there yeah. a book? Oh my gosh! Wait, is this? Someone told me about this. What is this book about again? It's about uh, World War Two, and it's. The, I mean, so the the uh, the book is. I, I strongly recommend it. it's Joseph. I think Joseph Heller. Okay. So wrote the book, but it's about how you do the kind of the cycles of of war. And people going crazy because of how of of the the re, like the reason that the term came up is because of how it's uh, you you were if you were 
you were crazy to go to war, but if you appeared crazy, then you were clearly faking it, and then you'd still have to go to war. Oh my gosh! It's like it's, <laughs> it, it's okay. a. It's been a while since I've read it, but I strongly recommend it. It, it is an incredible book. Interesting. Okay, yeah. yeah, I'll definitely have to tell her about it. No, we yep. have. I know I haven't heard of this book. Um, okay. Yeah. You've heard, uh, have you heard the term at least? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. And okay. and we kind of I think for us like trying to, speaking of trying to think of a cooler story of how we came up with the name. Yeah. Um, for us, we we kind of see the duo as as you know, we are beating the odds of, of, you know, we're not in the same city, but we're somehow making music together, you know? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't seem like that should work, but it does. And mm-hmm. then when we come together, it's just like everything lines up and it's, and it's great. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. So I think that's a little bit of, of where we each feel more in touch and, and more, um, where the actual like name and, and, uh, definitely connected to the mission and vision sort of side of things comes from. So on a related note, tell me a little bit about your work with the, cause I know you're part of the PAS um, diversity mm-hmm. group. So what's your kind of your role there and what, what kinds of things have you noticed over the, or dealt with over the last couple of years here? Sure. So I joined the diversity Alliance, I think around this time last year um, and they were, so I, I joined the, um, the leadership subcommittee. So they have several subcommittees within the diversity Alliance, um, which to me was really, was really nice to see that, um, there's a wide gamut of, of, um, focus isn't the right word. Um, but we'll go with it for now. Focus. Um, so being able to make sure that um, all parts of, of really, um, I guess, life in general are being, um, are being spoken for and being um, represented, which is really nice. Um, and uh, for me thinking about, you know, I'm about to start really like start my career and get a full-time job. And, you know, at the time i wasn't even thinking I was going to get a job anytime soon. Sure, but, yeah. um, but thinking about wanting to be involved in PAS in some way and help make an active change for the better, um, whatever that meant um, to me at the time. And and uh, for me, I think the big thing was kind of talking about the duo and how uh, being a, a female percussion duo, wanting there to be representation, that's a big thing for me is, is growing up, I felt, um, I felt kind of not the odd man out, but I, I, I felt, you know, um, that mm-hmm. there wasn't, it wasn't quite equal for me, um, being a female, I felt like I was in a big sea of, of, uh, mainly male predominant, um, instrument. Um, and I always wanted to see, to see more, um, to see more females, um, being able to participate and wanting to participate and, and all of that sort of thing. But, um, but anyway, so that's kind of where my, my, um, desire to join the diversity Alliance came from, um, is, uh, wanting to make an active change for the better in the percussion community. So, um, but, uh, yeah, so then I joined the leadership subcommittee that was headed by Julie Hill at the time, um, uh, who teaches at university of Tennessee Martin. Um, and she, um, we had our first meeting and she was like, so I actually want to take a step away from the subcommittee being the head of the subcommittee, um, because my schedule is getting crazy. And I was like, okay, cool. And she was like, so would anyone be interested in stepping up to, to, to head the subcommittee? And in the back of my head, I was like, oh, 
that sounds interesting. Like, I feel like I would be really, I, I would love doing that. I would love to, I would love to help. I would love to, you know, spearhead projects, sorts of things. Like that was, that's always been a passion of mine is, is sort of servant leadership and, and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Um, anyway, so I, I messaged, I sent her an email and I was like, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this, but I'm, I'm a little, um, I have some concerns. Can I, can I talk to you about it? Um, and she was like, yeah, sure. So we had a conversation. She was like, yeah, I absolutely think you should do this. So that's, that's where I, um, I, that's kind of where that came from is now I am the, uh, the, just like the head of the leadership subcommittee. Um, and, uh, over the past year, it's been great to see, um, and hear the things that have the diversity Alliance have done, um, to help, um, different things within PAS. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm really excited to see what this upcoming year, hopefully COVID was a little weird. They, uh, they were just saying in, in several meetings that it, because of COVID, we haven't been able to be as active, which I think that's just across the board. Not as many people have been able to do projects and things, but, um, but anyway, so I'm excited. I'm really excited to see what this year is going to look like. It'll be great to, to finally come back to PASIC, um, in person person and being able to, to meet as a, as an alliance. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, if you have anyone that's looking to join, to join and, and, and be a part of something within PAS, um, you can be a member of the diversity Alliance for however long you want, um, which is really nice and something that I enjoy, um, about, about that, uh, committee itself. So, um, anyway, so yeah, that's, that's where the diversity Alliance came from. Um, so yeah, hopefully more, more projects will start up this year. Um, we should be having a meeting sometime soon. So. Yeah. Well, Julie Hill has, is busy running the music department. Yes. At UQ, so she, she, yeah. she, she's got a lot of, she, and she was on the show like a couple of years ago. Um, she's oh, awesome. Nice. And I, Great. You know, kind of in, in a related thing is that you have, uh, this, I'm, again, I'm on your website. This well-behaved women seldom make history. Yeah. So I want to know more about that project. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, my consortium, um, well-behaved women seldom make history. Um, it, that uh, actually came from a quote um, that I uh, I have always really enjoyed it. Um, and kind of going back to what I was talking about in high school, being one of the few female in my section. Um, for me as a female percussionist, I've always wanted to play more pieces by women composers um, and thinking about um, the different um, female percussionists within the, the percussion field. Um, I wanted to, um, to not only, you know, honor them in some way, but I also wanted to, to help, um, add to the percussion canon with more works by females. Um, just because like thinking back, I can't really think of a whole lot of pieces, mainly in, mainly in percussion ensemble, but especially solo pieces, um, that I played by female composers. So anyway, so that's where this consortium kind of came out of, um, it's really funny. I thought of the idea as I was taking a shower one day because all the best ideas happen in the shower. Um, but anyway, yeah. So the consortium is, um, I am commissioning four female, um, composers, Jennifer Jolly, um, Molly Joyce, Shruti Rajasikar and Jury Sayo. Um, I'm uh, commissioning them to write four uh, pieces for solo percussion um, that are paying homage to four female percussionists who really helped um, 
bring percussion into what it is through the instruments that they championed. Um, so uh, Jennifer Jolly is writing the multi-percussion solo. Um, uh, that's paying respects to Evelyn Glennie. Um, Molly Joyce is writing the vibraphone solo for Marjorie Hames, jazz uh, vibraphonist Marjorie Hames. Jury Seo is writing the drum set solo for Terry Lynn Carrington. Um, and then uh, Shruti is writing the marimba solo for Keiko Abe. Um, so I'm really excited um, for this. So far, I've gotten, I think as of yesterday, I have 73 people um, who has joined the consortium. I'm incredibly humbled, incredibly just overwhelmed with um, with respect and love for everyone who's joined the consortium. Um, I had no idea that it would be, uh, something as big as it is now. Um, and it's been great to see, um, everyone's support and, and just how I, uh, you know, talking to my friends about it, they're like, Emily, you're, you're just fulfilling, uh, fulfilling this need. And it's just being supported by how many people are, are joining the project, um, and this need and want for, um, for, you know, something, something like you're, you're doing right now. Um, and so I'm really excited. It's cool. I'm getting, um, I'm getting all four of the solos in January. Um, and then I will be premiering all of them on my solo recital in April. Um, and then making recordings shortly after that. Um, but yeah, it, it stemmed from, again, a want for more representation for the female voice within the field. Um, and especially as a female percussionist, I felt this, this really deep and, and, and feel this very deep desire to do that. And, and, you know, I want to be a voice. I want to be a voice for change and for positive change and, um, and this to me was a no brainer and, and a great way for, for me to not only do that, but also for others to, to join in on that sort of thing. And, and, you know, again, it's not about me. It's, a, it's, it's about the music and it's about, um, it's about how uh, music is, is such a beautiful vehicle for, for change. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited. Um, all four composers are incredible. Um, I worked with Shruti a little bit on, she was on the Everybody Hits um, consortium that was led by Adam Crow. Um, and I uh, ended up coaching her piece that was a part of that um, with Michigan this past year. So that's where that, uh, that relationship had, had started. But, um, but yeah, I'm really excited. It's going to be, it's going to be awesome. And, um, I know that I, I had put, uh, I think I put August 1st as the closing date, but if, if others would like to join, just shoot me an email. Um, it's, I would love for as many people to join as you possibly can. It's, it's open to anyone and everyone. And, and I don't want it to, to, um, you know, I don't want to have to close it, um, but at some point I will. But yeah, just just shoot me an email if you're still interested in joining. Um, anyone is welcome. Yeah, that's fantastic. Again, slight pivot, but kind of staying in the same idea sure. is that obviously, as we mentioned before, you have this this uh, career in drum major, which is also not a lot of women are 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 that either. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has that informed some of, of your own kind of decisions that you've decided to make in your, um, you know, in your research, in, in the ways that you're, uh, you know, pushing forward like this consortium and other things? Sure. Um, wow. What a great question. Um, growing up, I, a focus of my childhood was always 
to be respectful, you know, and, and to, to listen to, you know, my teachers listen to, um, authority sorts of figures in my life. Um, and for me, especially as a female, I felt like this unspoken sort of the like respecting authority figures. And it it started in school sort of thing. My mom was a a kindergarten teacher for 30 years. So I was a, I was a teacher's kid and was around it for so much. And one of the main reasons why I want to be a teacher today. But um, so the, the respect for teachers, respect for authority figures, and that kind of coming from not always expressing my opinion in, in some situations, I think that's kind of where, what I'm getting at is, as I felt like maybe I had to do that a little more um, as, uh, as someone who was in this, uh, this field that was uh, predominantly male, I felt like when I did express my opinion, it got maybe a little lost within the mix. Um, and as I grew up and as I started to um, kind of realize things more and more, um, for me, especially through teaching and, and being in leadership positions, um, I, I wanted to show, and especially now, I want to show young, um, I want to show young students and adults that um, you don't have to always hold, uh, hold your tongue. You can express your opinion in ways that it won't get lost in the mix and in ways that um, you will be heard and you will be, you know, your, your voice will be heard. Your voice will be validated. It will be respected X, Y, and Z. Um, So when I became drum major, it was a lot of figuring out how to do that Um, because the marching arts also felt very male dominant. Um, And Especially my rookie only it only felt <laughs> not was is <laughs> it, it, it is it is yeah. it is and I think it's definitely taking steps um, to to become more inclusive and more equitable in its representation um, I think they're baby steps I wish the steps were a little bigger but I think a lot of that comes from maybe not knowing how to do that. Um, because for me, I still feel very new to, to this and new to, you know, how do I make change in a way that is, is you know, respectful and, and isn't going to exclude someone or upset someone or something along those lines. And I think, I, I mean, ultimately, I feel like someone, someone will probably will get upset by it. But I think there are ways to go about making change that, um, that helps everyone feel, feel safe and feel secure. And, and that's kind of where I feel like all of this change of, of, you know, within, I mean, for the example of DCI, um, I think that's kind of where people aren't sure how to do that. And for me, I'm still learning how to do that. And I want to be able to show, I think, show young students, how can you be a voice for that change within your position of whether you're in a leadership position or you're not. Um, So that's for me when I'm teaching leadership clinics, it's everybody is exactly the same and we're all on the same playing level and and those sorts of things. So 
I don't know if that really answered the question, but, um, but yeah, I had never, I, I honestly haven't thought about that before. Um, you know, I think I, I became a drum major because I enjoyed the marching arts, but looking back at it now, I definitely wanted to kind of be this like unspoken light and unspoken voice to show others like how much someone can love and care for you. Um, and how someone can, can not necessarily be like a leader who's just telling people what to do. You know, for me, that's not what leadership is. Leadership is, is coming and supporting others. Um, and when needed to give direction, but besides that, it's, it's about the people that you're leading. It's not about you. You're not the face. You're not the voice, right? Maybe like, thinking about in DCI, maybe I would do the interview. Okay, whatever. But like, it's not about me. You know, the people on the field are working way harder than I am. Like <laughs> I am not doing anything compared to what they are. So, um, but yeah, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of where I guess that that goes for me. I, I feel like some of the challenge, I'm not sure how much you've, you've thought about this portion, but you know, I think some of the challenge with, DCI or marching band groups in general is just that you just don't see, you know, our, our, our non-white men actually making progress up the, you know, up the ladders of either DCI or, or, you know, big state schools with marching bands and, you know, are, is the, um, you know, is it that like some of the, some people are just making it to be like a drum tech or to be like the caption head, but they're not the overall, uh, you know, they may be like the, um, they may be the, the mellophone captain, but not the brass, you know, these kinds of things, sure. like how much, how much of the ladder is that kind of stuff happening? Yeah. I think what I'd like there to be more obvious and tangible change happening, of course. But again, I think it's just, we we maybe don't know how to do that as, as a society that's going to, to bring people together and not make it feel either like a, you know, it's a, it's a dog and pony show sort of thing, you know? And, and I think that's where having conversations about it, having conversations, but also getting trained on how to do these things because there, you know, there are people who've dedicated their life to, to this, right. To, to helping people learn how to have productive conversations starting from the same page. Um, so that the change, the tangible change can happen. And, and that's what I'm hoping from, from organizations like, like DCI and, you know, even PAS, um, I think across the gamut, we can be better, you know, not, not just as, uh, you know, uh, marching arts or just the progressive society, but just like, you know, <laughs> the world in general, I think it could be better. Um, and I think that's, it's, it starts with a conversation. It starts with, um, making sure we're on the same page and it starts with understanding how to have those conversations that are open and constructive and that will help people feel, feel safe in their own skin and feel heard and feel validated. So yeah. Yeah. All right, Emily, let's back up. So you said you grew up in South Carolina. Um, so I grew up oh, in yeah. Asheville. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Grew up in Asheville. Uh, and you, 
so you you have you said your your mom was a teacher, but what? did you have any family members in the arts? Um, not in my immediate family. So I was an only child. Um, so my sibling was my dad. I, su- I assume <laughs> still an only child, right? Um, it's a little complicated. Okay. I have two step siblings now. <laughs> okay, um, gotcha. uh, it's, a, it's a little complicated. Um, but growing up, I was an only child. Um, so it was my mom and I for the longest time until she met my stepdad. Um, but, uh, within my immediate family, there wasn't anyone that actively played a musical instrument. Um, my mom sang in the choir. I grew up in church. So my mom sang in the choir. Um, she put me in piano lessons at an early age. We would listen to music in the car all the time, and my I think um, my love for percussion especially came from my grandfather, actually, my mom's dad. And he, um, he actually was a drummer. I never actually saw him play, um, but he loved jazz. Um, and he was always like he he would be in his office, and I would hear um, like I would hear uh, just any and all types of jazz just like leaking out of his office. And I would always go in and, and ask him, grandpa, what are you listening to? And he would tell me. And, and I remember listening to these big bands and just like falling in love with the sound of the drums and, and for whatever reason. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where it came from, but yeah, no one, no one actually played besides me. Um, and then when I started in middle school, um, you know, started playing percussion and <laughs> the rest is history, like fell in love with it, love it ever since. I've never, never one day been bored or lost interest in my instrument um, because of, you know, how unique it is and how young it is. I forget how young of an instrument percussion is, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I think it came from um, just growing up with music all around me, even if it wasn't classical music, you know. Um, just listening to it in the car. I remember my mom was a big Rascal Flatts fan <laughs> for whatever okay. reason. Yeah. Um, so she had a bunch of albums in her car and we would just, you know, she would blast Rascal Flatts <laughs> and we'd sing it. So no, it was great. Now tell, tell people a little bit more about Asheville as an area. Cause it's a really specific, interesting part of that state. <laughs> oh Yeah. Yeah, so Asheville, it was, um, Asheville's fun. It's kind of in this, like, bowl of mountains. Um, So there's mountains surrounding you, um, and sometimes you get snow, sometimes you don't. um, But it's beautiful. The Blue Ridge Parkway goes right through Asheville. Um, So every fall, a bunch of tourists come, and (laughs) all the townies grumble because now there's a bunch of people in town. But um, but it's beautiful when um, the leaves change, and it's, it's... uh, it's amazing. Like I've never lived anywhere that is as beautiful as Asheville is, especially during the fall. Um, but there's also the Biltmore house, um, which is a giant estate of, uh, the Biltmore mansion that I went to many a field trip on. Um, it's beautiful in the winter. Um, they have a bunch of poinsettias everywhere. You can take a candlelight tour. Um, uh, the winery is beautiful. They do a chocolate wine pairing sometimes. I haven't been, but I really want to, um, and then Asheville is just, uh, uh, it's a, it's a fun, wacky town in general. It's very, um, very, uh, immersed in the arts, visually dance, music, all of those sorts of things. Um, the river arts district is a, it's a really cool spot. If you want to find 
pottery, um, paintings, anything along those lines. Um, cheese shops, we'll just say. Cheese you know. shops, yes. Uh, the chocolate lounge, have to go to the chocolate lounge <laughs> if you want some really good chocolate. Um, but it's also uh, Beer City USA. Um, it's really nice. It has Sierra Nevada and uh, New Belgium and a bunch of microbreweries all over the area. Um, so if you like if you like craft beer, Asheville is the place to go. Um, but it's also quite a foodie town, but it's also very homey. Um, you get out of downtown and it, it becomes a little more rural. Like where I went to middle school, it's, it's out in a bunch of farms. So like I remember running on the cross country team and we just run by like a field of cows or something. Then you come into town and it's very different, but, um, but yeah, it's a beautiful place to grow up. Um, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Hendersonville is just, you know, a little, Hop, skip, and jump away. Um, if you really like donuts, McFarland's Bakery. <laughs> the best donuts I've ever had. But you have to get there really early because they sell out really fast. But um, but yeah, no, it's it's a it's a fun spot in the heart of heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains. That's a you know, and that's a strong it's a strong take considering North Carolina is the home of Krispy Kreme. I know and the hot donuts. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, listen, if that hot now signs on, my stepdad, we're going. But yeah. <laughs> no, nothing beats a McFarland's uh, just like glazed donut. Nothing beats it. So good. Yeah, I was actually just. Uh, I my wife and I were just there because we were driving and visiting. Uh, our families, uh, my wife and I both met at Wake Forest. Uh, oh yeah. So and and we have a really good friend who lives in Asheville, and um, and so we went to um, Biscuit Head. Yes, so good. It's so good. So good. At what point do you do? Because you said you were enrolled in piano, mm-hmm. or your your mom enrolled you in piano. But what yeah. at what point did you realize that per- it was the percussion bug that was that you got bit by? Yeah. So yeah, I took piano at a young age. And then at one point I realized I actually had to practice to get better at it. And I was like, I don't want to do this. The shocking development. Yes. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so got into elementary school music and did the recorder thing, um, was in the fourth and fifth grade choir. Um, You know, we, my elementary music teacher actually did a lot with instruments, not just ORF and Kodai sorts of things, but like she actually had pianos and um, she had boom whackers and other things like that. Um, but from a young age, I just loved music. So it was a no brainer that I wanted to join band um, when middle school came around, but it was funny, the first instrument. Um, so I picked two instruments before I actually got to percussion. So this was, it was at the like, uh, instrument petting zoo tryout day or whatever. And I remember I wanted to play trumpet. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go over and I'll, I'm going to try it. And I couldn't even like make a sound on the mouthpiece at all. I, I couldn't buzz. And I was like, okay, maybe not that. And I was like, Oh, I could try clarinet. Um, so I went over and I could make a sound, but I couldn't make a sound without feeling like I was going to pass out. So I was like, maybe a wind instrument is not for me. Um, and I remember I came back and mom and I were sitting at a table and she saw me eyeing, um, there was, uh, there was someone playing just simple rhythms on a snare drum. Um, and there was a line and, and, uh, all of the students had to just, uh, copy it back. And that was it. Um, she saw me eyeing the snare drum and she was like, Emily, are you going to be upset if you don't go try the snare drum before we leave? And I was like, yeah. She was like, okay, go get your button line. And I was like, all right. 
So waited in line um, and I got up there and I actually lasted way longer than anyone else did. As soon as you messed up, then, then it was the next person in line. Um, but I remember I, I ran over and I came back and I was like, I want to play that. And she was like, okay, great. Um, and, and yeah, ever since then it's been percussion and I'm very thankful that I did take piano um, because I wasn't having to struggle learning how to read music while I was also learning how to play the instrument. And, you know, for young students, that's one of the hardest things in the world. It's a new language essentially, but, um, but yeah, it made especially the mallet side of things way easier and learning how to develop the, the like looking down at the instrument, but also looking up at your music and playing at the same time. I didn't have to do a lot of, I see a lot of young students just like memorize it and then look down and play it. So I was able to, to learn that skill early on um, because of, because of my piano training and not having to learn how to read music, which was nice. So yeah, yeah, it was fun. And it helped that my middle school band director was a percussionist. Um, So he was able to structure um, the way that we had rehearsals and uh, bringing in people from the high school to come and just work with percussionists and sort of stuff. So I got a lot of one-on-one um, hands-on experience and in, in teaching at a really young age. So you should finish that story off though with, and then I got in line and played drum corps and parade and you know, <laughs> right. As, as a 10 year old. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> right. Who else is going to play it? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so at what point do, does the, I might be jumping ahead here, but at what point does the DCI portion come into your life? Not until college. Um, In high school, I I did marching band. Um, So my first year, um, I marched uh, bass drum. And then I was drum major for three years. Um, And then when I got to college, my first two years of being in marching band, I also marched bass drum. Um, But I had uh, auditioned to be drum major, um, but didn't get that until I was a junior and had that junior senior. But um, I had a friend in the percussion studio who had marched with Crown in their front ensemble. Um, and he knew that I had been drum major in high school. He knew I was interested in doing it in college. And he knew that I just loved conducting in general. Um, and he encouraged me. So I was a sophomore at the time. He encouraged me um, to audition for Crown in 2015. And they were having open drum major auditions and um and I was like well I don't even know what this is like I didn't grow up with drum corps I didn't grow up watching the videos I had no idea what it was um so I remember he telling me about it and I was like yeah I'll look into it sure um so spending that evening staying up until like two or three in the morning just watching drum corps videos and going what on earth is this (laughs) this is wild um but yeah. So I, I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Like, I like marching bands. I like conducting. Why not? Um, so I sent in my application and I remember showing up to um, the October camp in Fort Mill and there being so many people for this audition. I was like, holy cow, <laughs> this is stressful. Um, and to top it all off, I actually ended up having to go back to Furman to play a football game and then go back. Um, but anyway, so yeah, did the audition. There were over 50 people auditioning for two spots. Um, and I got a call back, uh, for the November camp. Five of us got a call back. Um, 
and came back to the November camp, um, did that audition, um, and was offered a contract. And I was like, yeah, cool, sweet. Like I had no idea what I had just signed up for. Um, but I was able to go, um, we went to spring training and I was like, Oh, this is what, this is what this is. Okay. I get it now. Um, but yeah, so it, it honestly just came from, my conversation with a friend, he was like, I think you would be really great at this. I think you would be a great addition to the core. Um, so yeah, you should look into doing it. And, and I'm so glad that I did. Um, it was the two hardest summers of my life. Um, but some two of the most fulfilling summers of my life, I really learned how, uh, to be, to be the leader that I am today. I really learned how to communicate with a wide gamut of personalities, um, a wide gamut of people, um, life experiences, and, you know, trying to help everyone um, be on the same page and, and you know, put out an, a great show every week. <laughs> I learned how to sleep anywhere. I can now sleep literally anywhere, sitting up, laying down, wherever. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I have some of the best memories and some of the, uh, the most lifelong relationships from, from those two summers. And, um, and like I said, I'm still involved with the marching arts. I help uh, crown out some summers with their leadership and drum major camp. I help with their auditions sometimes. I gave a clinic, um, I guess, two, uh, two Januaries ago at the drum major summit in, uh, that DCI has in January. I gave a a clinic, um, on, uh, how to, um, how to make percussion books easier for drum majors, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, and I've given that clinic a couple of times, but, uh, but yeah, it's still very involved, which is nice. Um, and, and hope to continue, uh, that relationship with the marching arts still. So what, what was part of the, the first audition for the drum major? And then what was part of the second one? For the first one in October, everyone, um, so when you signed up for uh, the camp, you were given a packet. And within the packet, it, you know, told you about the core, it told you about the schedule for the weekend. Um, but the audition itself was um, I had to conduct the opener from uh, their 2014 show, Out of This World. Um, and then I was also going to conduct the ballad um, from the same show. Um, so I ended up, uh, like I said, I ended up going back to Furman for a noon football game. And then I came back that evening on Saturday. Now, what, and so, so I'm sorry, just one thing to uh, add for clarification. Uh, when they, when they say you, you had to conduct, you know, the opener and the ballad, what um, are you conducting to? Oh, just a recording. Okay. Yeah, it was just a recording. Um, but yeah, so I got back Saturday evening and, and they had already started the auditions and they knew that I was going to be gone. So I ended up going on Sunday, but that's when they told us what we were actually going to do. So I was given the packet and I said, you're going to conduct this and you're going to conduct this. But they added a twist um, that I didn't realize until Saturday where I was conducting the opener twice, one to a full core recording and then one to just a percussion recording. And I was like, sweet, got it. I can do that all day long. Um, so that was easy. But the ballad, they were they actually said, OK, you're going to conduct it. But instead of conducting to a recording, you're going to conduct uh, to yourself. So you're going to sing the first phrase 
of the ballad. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm a percussionist. I'm in band for a reason. <laughs> um, so so ended up like, you know, since I got back so late, I didn't really have time to think about it. I just had to do it. Um, so went in on Sunday morning, did it, came out and was like, oh, my gosh, what was that? Um, but ended up getting ended up getting that call back. So then in November, since it's way condensed there's only at least for me there were only five people we were doing things that you would basically do if you were a contracted drum major so like we were going around and helping conduct at sectionals um we were helping the staff by bringing them different things that they needed um communicating different things to members within the core helping the um administration and whatever they needed um so basically anything and everything um, and then the big portion of the audition was we had to help lead and run um, a full brass rehearsal. And that normally happened on Saturday evening. So um, like we would get up and we would have the staff and they would be giving feedback and, and saying what sections we wanted to run. But we were we were the ones who were you know in charge of of giving the instruction, going through the um, the step by step of, of their rehearsal protocol and stuff like that. And and that's really where that uh, the big the big big portion of the audition came from so yeah I remember getting up there and um we had just run a section and I just put everyone's horns down and I was waiting for the staff member to to um uh you know get feedback or whatever and he (laughs) he just turns around to me and he looks at me and he goes are you a percussionist like out of nowhere had no idea who I was um, I think maybe he knew my name, but like didn't know my background or anything like that. And I was like, yes, sir, I am. And he was like, okay, cool. Let's do this. And like, just kept going. Um, so, uh, for me as a percussionist, as a drum major, it helped me a lot with tempo maintenance sorts of things. And I think that was the reason why he asked was I, I was a big stickler on making sure that the horn line didn't slow down and that they played together and that they played in time. Um, so I think that's where that came from. But yeah, that's what the that's what the two audition camps looked like. And then after that camp in November, at the end of it on Sunday, I was offered a contract, which was cool. Um, and then uh, then I every camp until then, um, which is just once a month until spring training happens in uh, April. Um, uh, then I was helping, you know, I was a drum major at that point. So I was running full rehearsals. I was helping with sectionals. I was getting staff, anything and everything and running around with my chicken, uh, like a chicken with their head cut off sometimes. But, um, but yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. I'm really glad that I did it. Learned a lot. Now going back to, to high school, you had, huh? you'd alluded to this, um, as something you were doing outside because uh-huh. you said you were, you ran cross country. I did (laughs) in middle school, (laughs) In middle school. Yeah. In middle school. Yeah. So I, I, um, so not only was I in band, but I was also, uh, a little bit of an athlete in middle school in my first two years of high school. So I played, um, let's see, I was in band and then I also ran cross country and I played basketball and I ran track. Um, and then I also played softball in high school. So, um, but yeah, I grew up playing basketball. I grew up, um, I loved being outside. I loved playing sports. I loved throwing a baseball and a football with my dad and my stepdad and, uh, just 
just grew up outside doing things. Like, again, like growing up in Asheville, we had the Pisgah National Forest literally in our backyard. So, you know, we would go hiking and biking and rafting and camping and you name it, we did it. Um, so I was very much outside all of my life, basically. So sports were, uh, yeah, they came really, really naturally. And, and I loved playing sports and, and still love, um, you know, we, uh, uh, I love playing catch. I have a friend here at Michigan who she also played softball. So like we go and play catch sometimes and, and it's great. So, but yeah, yeah. Was also an athlete a little bit. <laughs> nice. Good. Because you ran cross country. Does that mean that you're on track? Were you also running distance? events there oh, not on track so i was oh. uh, i was a sprinter for track so i mainly oh. did yeah so i mainly did my main event was the four by one and the four by two so i enjoyed mm-hmm. relays a lot yeah. um but then i also did the 200 and the 100 but yeah i was a sprinter nice did you watch did you watch uh any of that in the olympics oh yeah definitely definitely yeah. I think I enjoy watching that, but I also love watching the swimming events just because oh. I am a terrible swimmer. I'm, I can, I can swim and whatever, but right. like I can never do what they do. Oh yeah. I wish, I always wish I could, I could swim laps, but I'm like, I die after half. I could <laughs> never, I could never, <laughs> but it's, it's fun to watch. Yeah. Well, it never feels like you don't feel the sweat because you're in the oh, water. Yeah. So you're just tired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, why am I doing this? Right. <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> I could do this forever. Why am I sinking? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Like, I'll just, I got it. I'll doggy paddle to the end. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. um, I was watching uh, the, um, the four by 400 uh-huh. relay when it was like all the champions Yep. Uh, it was so like they just destroyed the, the field. It was so You're much fun. Insane. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They tried to get me to do the 400, and I was like, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That is too much. Yeah. I don't want to sprint for an entire lap. Thank you, though. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, give a, um, let's give, give a little scouting report on your basketball game. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. I, let's see. I was a shooter for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a lot of three pointers and that was basically what I was known for. I wasn't great at defense. I wasn't great at offense, but if you could give me the ball, I'll put it in the net for you all day long. <laughs> <laughs> you jack it up. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Emily's yeah, the, but, the black hole. Right. <laughs> you get the ball. It's not coming back. Yep. That's right. It's going in. It's going in. <laughs> Always open. Always yeah. open, Emily Salgado. All right, that's good. Right. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's hilarious. You said you went to Furman? I did. Huh? So, okay, so I'll cut a statement before I ask the question. One is okay. that the Greenville uh, contingent will be very upset if they think that that because Greenville is is also in a, a an incredibly beautiful uh wonderful weird place. Yeah, uh, it is. <laughs> but it is. How did you know about the program? So in high school, thinking about what I wanted to do after high school, college was a no-brainer and music was also a no-brainer, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do within music specifically. Um, My band director was like, you're going to be a band director. Go be a music education major. And I think just to be spiteful to him, I was like, no, I am going to be a performance major. So, um, but thinking about... uh, 
like how I, I learned about Furman in the first place was I think I was just Googling music schools close to Asheville. Um, and Furman is only a 45 minute drive from, from Asheville. Um, so I was like, Oh, Furman. Okay, sure. And I was looking for a smaller school that, um, I was going to one, not study with a TA for private lessons. And two, that I would be able to get a lot of one-on-one attention with my teachers if need be. Um, and in Furman, like I found it in Furman, um, my studio, I think the most that the percussion studio was, I think was maybe like 12 or 15. Um, so it was much smaller and I got a lot of playing experience because of that. But, um, like my teacher, Omar Carminade is like, Mm -hmm. I could walk by his door and just say hi, you know, like I, I didn't feel like that, at least at the time, I didn't feel like I could do that at a bigger school. Um, and, and, you know, it was so nice to be able to just have that like personal relationship with my professor. Um, and, and that's again, what I was looking for. And, and the thing that set firm and apart to me from the other schools I applied to, um, was, uh, was how welcoming it was on my audition day and, and the focus of the experience of the audition day and letting you feel not just like a number, but you know, like you were actually seen and you were, you, people were glad that you were there. Um, the way that Furman structured that audition day really helped me feel like that. And I remember like my stepdad helped me. Um, he drove me down to the audition it's funny we actually rode down on his motorcycle so that was always funny pulling up to oh. my audition <laughs> um on the back of my stepdad's motorcycle but uh but it was fun so i remember after that audition he went to all of them with me um and he told me afterwards that my reaction to Furman was vastly different than all the other schools and and you know financial aid also helped with that but but yeah, Furman always felt like home. Um, and, and I loved my four years there. Like I said, I had a lot of performance experience being at a smaller school, had to be in a lot of ensembles and, uh, I got a lot of exposure to different types of music and, um, especially chamber music. I hadn't really done that in high school at all. So that was really fun to be in percussion ensemble and and learn how to be a chamber musician, which helped with so many other things. And, um, and yeah, different recording projects that we did, but, um, but yeah, like, uh, Omar is, is still a good friend of mine and love him dearly. And, you know, he's the reason, uh, he's, he helped me so much become who I am today, which is great. Um, and it's been really cool as an alumni to see what that program has, has done and helped grow and and turn into today. He's really, he's really taken that program and, and made it into, into something really special, which is, which is great. And it makes me very proud as an alumni to see it. So. Yeah. Now, did you overlap at all with Rebecca McDaniel? Yes, I love Rebecca McDaniel. She was actually, so she was a senior my freshman year. And in marching band, she was my band big. Um, And I love her so much. She is a big, uh, a big reason um, why I, uh, didn't die my freshman year. <laughs> she helped a lot. Um, but yeah, what a sweetheart. What a sweetheart. Love her dearly. Love her dearly. Yeah. She did her master's at Mizzou. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Right before I started here. I don't, we, we, okay. so I knew her like kind of sort of, uh-huh. um, but 
um, but yeah, so I heard like a lot about the, the, um, Furman experience under yeah. Omar from her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's obviously, she's doing wonderful oh, things yeah. with third coast. Do you know, uh, Ryan Patterson? Yes. i so I've had both of them. They've both, uh, been on the show. And I mean, I, I knew Ryan cause Ryan's second year, uh, at Mizzou was my first year. Uh-huh. And so he was the, and I'm the assistant director of marching Mizzou. So yeah, yep. he was, so yeah, I, I know him pretty well. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, he's yeah. a good friend of mine. He and um, he and my one of my uh, best friends from Furman, they just got engaged. Yay! Excited. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, well, he's now um, he's now Doctor Ryan Patterson. He is. He's yeah. officially doctor as of yeah. a couple weeks ago, I think. It's but, pretty recent. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's so good. So, yeah. So good. But, what was something that when you started working with? Omar that you really, that you found out, okay, this is actually either it's like a different level. This is different, but I got to adjust. It's he's, what kinds of things did you realize that you needed to work on? In high school, I actually didn't take private lessons at all. Um, I did right before my college auditions just to prepare for those, but, but I had never taken lessons growing up. Um, So that was a new thing. Just the, the concept of a class, being just a one-on-one with my professor getting feedback. So that, that was different. Um, but, uh, the big one was I didn't know how to play four mallets before I got to college. Um, so my entire freshman year was figuring out how to do that and how to, um, you know, how to control the mallets, how to (laughs) just do it in general. Um, and it, it felt very, um, accelerated because of being in percussion ensemble. And the first percussion ensemble piece I ever played was gravity by Mark Mallets. And I played one of the vibraphone parts and that involves four mallets. And, you know, Omar kind of just threw me in there and said, figure it out. And I was like, okay. So it was a lot of, I remember I spent a lot of time just learning and figuring out the motion itself of how do I separate? I, I learned Stevens. Um, so I figuring out how do I separate my hand and really, you know, cut it in half and doing that on a daily basis. And then having to practice a really hard piece of music that I, you know, had never played anything at that level before. So, um, it very quickly became, you know, I was, I was the the big fish in a little pond in high school being the best. And then I went to Furman and I was a little fish in a big pond and I was not as good as I thought I was. And that was really good for me as a person to figure out, all right, like, no, you're not as good as you think you are. So let's come on, let's go shed. Let's go grind a little bit and get better. Um, and it, it helped me learn how to practice and it learned, um, it taught me how to, you know, to put my, my personal feelings aside and ask for help when I needed it. And, you know, Rebecca and Ryan were, uh, were wonderful assets to, to help me and and be able to answer any questions that I had. So, um, it, yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of, figuring it out and figuring it out fast and, and asking for help when I needed it. So the, the second part though, is about the fact that Furman is this uh, really competitive academic school outside. I mean, within sure, but you know, you're around like the best of the best mm-hmm. in every field, in every class that you're in. So what was that experience like? It was hard. So I didn't, I didn't really realize what 
going to a liberal arts school meant until I was in it. Um, and realizing that, you know, I was, I think I knew that I wanted to go to a school where I could explore other things outside of music if I wanted to. Um, and, you know, either through the curriculum in which that I had to take classes or, or other opportunities. But, um, but yeah, having to take some gen eds that were tough, like four credits, you know, three classes a week for two hours, sometimes at a time. And maybe you have a lab for your biology class. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was tough on top of all of my music load. It, it, it almost felt like, especially as a music ed major, I almost felt like I was double majoring um, in it. And, and it was, it was hard. It, it involved a lot of sleepless nights It involved a lot of planning ahead. Um, it sometimes required not as much practicing as I wanted it to. And, and uh, for me, kind of what I was talking about uh, at the beginning with uh, the kind of marching arts, forcing you to learn how to, 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 really be on top of your schedule being at Furman it I had to or I was gonna drown like either my grades were gonna fall or I was gonna get no sleep or I was gonna get way behind in my lessons and so I had to learn how to micromanage my time to the nth degree and and that's something that I have used ever since and it's helped me always stay two steps ahead of everything that I've needed to do and um, and especially in regards to assignments it's it's been really helpful so um, and it's helped me as a teacher you know it's helped me realize like oh I don't always you know my students have other things they have to do and and sometimes what what I'm teaching is not always the most important thing in their life. And I have to realize that. And I also have to have patience and understanding for where they're coming from. Not necessarily like letting my expectations down for them, but, um, but just kind of, you know, meeting them where they are and helping them. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was hard. (laughs) Furman's hard. Um, But everyone who went through the program said, if you can, if you can survive Furman and get out well, um, then you can do anything. And a hundred percent, it's been true. It's been a walk in the park since then. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was, it was great. I, I wouldn't trade those four years, uh, and the relationships I made for anything. It was great. Also, now that I've brought up and the rivalry, we'll say it between Greenville and uh, Asheville, feel free to, to discuss the, the beauty that is Greenville South Carolina. Oh yeah. Greenville's awesome. I, I, I kind of, uh, it's very similar to Asheville. Um, I say that it's not as weird as Asheville. It's a little, it's like a bougie Asheville. Um, (laughs) um, but it's beautiful. Downtown is, it's very, it's similar to Asheville in the sense there's a lot of good food. Um, there's a lot of great craft beer around. Um, but there's also, uh, so Falls Park um, is a yeah. beautiful bridge. Incredible. In, <laughs> yeah, bridge in downtown. Um, it's uh, it's beautiful. They have, I think they have Shakespeare in the park down there during the summer. Um, during the fall, they have Fall for Greenville downtown. Um, they also have a farmer's market um, on Saturdays during the summer. Um and they also have, similar to Asheville, it's very rich in the arts, in, in any form, visual, performance, you name it. Um, and uh, it's, it's 
yeah, it's, it was a really fun place to grow up in a different, a different part of my life. Yeah. It, it, it's beautiful and it's its own amazing ways. Um, yeah, I definitely, definitely would recommend Falls Park. Yeah. So is it through Omar that you head to Florida state after? That's right. Yeah. So Omar being, um, one of, uh, John Park's first DMA students. Um, uh, yeah. So that's where that connection came from and went down auditioned and, uh, got a TA spot. Uh, thankfully, um, very, very, very thankful for my TA spot there. Um, but yeah, I went to FSU and did my two years of my master's played with, uh, my first professional group uh, with the Tallahassee Symphony um, for the two years that I was there as a section percussionist was so much fun. Loved that. Um, played a lot of uh, a lot of percussion ensemble music. That's where I got my first experience teaching undergrads um, and teaching um, lessons and uh, the percussion methods class and coaching percussion ensemble. Um, let's see what else. Played, we went on tour um, down to Tampa to play at, um, I think, the Florida Music Educators Association with the Symphonic Band. That was fun. Um, the Percussion Ensemble also went on tour to Lasseter High School in Georgia in the Atlanta area, and that was fun to put on that show. Um, that was a lot of fun, but, uh, but yeah, I loved my two years at, at Florida State. It was, it was so much fun. Played so much music got so good at my instrument um, and love studying with Dr. Parks. What a guy. So what was uh, similar or different between the two of them, aside from obviously with Dr. Parks, the swearing? <laughs> um, let's see. I feel like my time at Furman um, was a lot of, a lot of learning just how to be a, solo percussionist because I just never did that in high school. I'd always played in ensembles and the only time I ever did play solo rep was for solo and ensemble. And even then it wasn't really, um, it wasn't like playing a marimba solo or something like that. So it was, it was a lot of learning how to be a solo musician and what that meant as a percussionist and learning all of the, the technical side of things along the way. Um, and then when I got to FSU, it felt very much taking what I had done um, and and kind of um, makes me think of like a camera lens where you go from out of focus to in focus. That's kind of what it felt like um, was taking the skills that I learned and just refining those um, to a really high level. And um, through, you know, different types of music that I played and through um, my teaching and all, all sorts of things like that, but definitely, um, definitely a refining process, but there, I saw a lot of similarities, um, at first, uh, in their teaching styles and in, in the rep that they were giving me to play it, it was very similar, but Omar being, you know, his own unique voice outside of, outside of Dr. Parks, but, uh, a lot of similarities, a lot of similarities. What was some of the, just because you said I played like a ton of lit, like what were some of the things that you were covering when you got to your master's? Yeah, it was a lot of Bach. Um, Dr. Parks being a big fan of Bach. So I played a lot of Bach. Um, I played a lot of orchestral uh, excerpts, um, especially on timpani, played a lot of Beethoven, played a lot of Mahler. Um, let's see, marimba wise, um, it was just playing choppier pieces. I had played a lot of 
pretty pieces at Furman, a lot of lyrical things, just again, learning how to be a, a soloist. Um, so basically taking all of those musical ideas, being reinforced with the Bach, but just adding a lot of chops in it. So I played, um, I played Andy Harnberger's Phoenix. Um, I played Gordon Stout's Rumble Strips. Um, those were the two big ones that I can think of. And then a couple of small ones in between there, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was mainly a lot of Bach. And then for snare drum, it was, um, a lot of De La Clouse. I think I went through the whole De La Clouse book. Um, I think I went through the whole Pratt book, um, and then getting a little bit into the Tompkins. Um, but yeah, Parks was, is a big fan of, of the De La Clouse book for sure. But, um, but yeah, it, it felt more, uh, more bread and butter sorts of things. Um, yeah. Then out, outside of that. Yeah. And again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pick on, uh, or, or just leave out Tallahassee oh, as, yeah. a, as a um, as a beautiful city. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, feel free to compare Tallahassee to Greenville and Asheville. Oh yeah. So Tallahassee to me, that was the first kind of quote unquote big city that I lived in. Um, and it, <laughs> I like to describe Tallahassee as kind of you know when you're like putting together a puzzle and you have a couple of pieces that kind of fit together, but don't quite make the picture. Like that's kind of how I describe Tallahassee. It has like, you have the university and the students and then you have, um, uh, maybe a more rural side and then you have, um, a more, uh, like higher end sorts of living community sorts of side of things. Um, and then you have the side that you just don't know what to do with and all of those put together make Tallahassee. So, uh, the energy there is, is, is high just because of the school being big and especially on Saturdays for game days, um, with the marching chiefs, it's, there it's wild how many people they can put on a field but um but yeah it's it's got its beauty in its own Floridian way I um I actually um uh, was born in Tampa um so Florida Florida is is home I I only lived there from you know when I was born to the age of four so I don't really uh, remember it a whole lot but um but it was nice coming back home to to Florida and being in in the sun and being really close to beaches and you know I we could you know, drive down to Gainesville if we wanted, but we don't talk about those people. Right, right, yeah. That's <laughs> um, I do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Florida was great. Uh, it was ridiculously hot, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. Tallahassee's a Tallahassee's a cool spot. A lot of good coffee. A lot of good coffee. It has to have something good about it, right? <laughs> right. I want to backtrack a sec. So, because you said you your undergrad was music ed, right? Mm-hmm. Are you doing, I know you, there was like a little, you said like a little bit of spite, like you're doing for, for whatever right. about that degree. But yeah. did you, did you think I'm definitely, I know that I am not doing band directing? So I didn't know. Okay. I didn't know. Um, but I went in because I didn't know what I wanted to do. That's, I mean, that's the real reason why I, I came in as a performance major and then mm-hmm. Actually, um, the summer before my sophomore year, um, I worked at a summer camp out in Charleston. Um, that wasn't a music-related camp at all. It was just a, a stay-away summer camp at the beach. Um, and that summer allowed me – it helped me realize that I enjoyed working with students. 
and I enjoyed um, just helping them grow and, and seeing them uh, really blossom into, into who, who they were, even though I wasn't doing anything music related, just like being around that age group. Um, I had a lot of fun and it was really cool just to, to interact with them and, and hear their own stories. So um, when I came back to Furman, I was like, yeah, I think I want to be a, a music education major. So that's when I switched. Um, and then taking my education classes and, um, you know, doing, uh, observation hours in classrooms. And then finally in my student teaching, yeah, I just affirmed my love for teaching. And, and I think it, it again came from seeing my mom, like she was an incredible teacher and she taught for 30 years and she was the teacher that didn't just love her students because they were her students. She loved them because they were children and she, she just wanted children to be loved and to be cared for. And she showed that not just through being a teacher, but also loving the parents of those teachers, because for her, that's, that's where it starts, you know, for, for young students, especially um, they go home and, and she just wanted to, to be a small part in making sure that their home life was good. Um, and, if, if that meant she needed to give a kid a ride home or something like that, or if she needed to help a parent out in some way, she would. Um, and so seeing that growing up from a young age, I think that really subconsciously and consciously instilled in me this love for, for students and to help the next generation become the best that they can be. So, And then from there, student teaching-wise, I realized <laughs> I loved high school teaching um, I didn't love middle school teaching as much, um, <laughs> um, but I, I think I also realized that I, I didn't, not that I didn't want to be a band director, but that if I had, went and taught high school band, I wouldn't have wanted to go back to school. Um, and uh, so that's kind of where the, the thought process of, okay, well, let's just go get your master's because I wanted to see if I wanted to teach college. Like I, I had thought about it before and watching Omar teach at Furman, I was really intrigued by it. And I was like, this looks like a lot of fun. You know, like I love percussion. I love band and I love music in general, but I also really love percussion. So let's just go see what this is about. Um, and then getting into my master's and actually teaching at the college level that showed me that, no, 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 this is actually where your passion lies. And, and, you know, I love, I love working with high school students and, and, you know, teaching private lessons and stuff, but I don't think I ever wanted to be a band director. Um, maybe, maybe I could have fallen back on that in after my master's, but, um, but yeah, once I got into it, realized, no, I think, I think college is really the thing that I want to do. How do you end up going to Michigan and kind of secondarily, when you are applying and you decide to go there, is that position in flux when you're applying to go to Michigan? Because they had, they had like recently had a changeover of percussion instructors, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I um, thinking about DMA programs. I was thinking a lot about what schools are placing students into jobs. Yeah. Um, and thinking about the big ones, uh, the ones that I applied to. So I applied to Michigan, um, University of Kentucky, Eastman, and then I reapplied to FSU. Um, mm-hmm. But I was also thinking about um, what places had uh, teaching assistantships um, because, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to afford either of my higher ed degrees if I hadn't had those positions. So, um, so those two things combined kind of led me to, to find Michigan. 
in parks, it encouraged me to do that. So, um, did the audition at Michigan. And so I was kind of on the cusp of that transition, um, where, um, I had already accepted my TA position when, um, the, the shift was announced. Um, and so my first year, um, I actually didn't know who my professor was going to be. Doug at the time was the interim director. So I was taking lessons with him, but, um, but yeah, my first year, it was, it was interesting to see, um, all of the auditions. So that's when they opened up both positions. So we had four people audition for the associate position and then five people audition for the assistant. And it was nice to see that as a doctoral student thinking about, Oh, I'm about to go through this. Um, so it was, it was great and it was really fun. So I actually ended up playing for the associate position master classes and things like that. So it was nice to be actually in it and then seeing how they presented their, their, uh, little clinic and then, um, their performances and, and things like that. So it really reinforced the things that we had been talking about in classes and, and things like that. But, um, but yeah, so that's kind of where Michigan came into the picture. And, um, so I was just on the cusp of, of that transition, but, um, but yeah, it's been great. Um, since Doug and Ian had, uh, officially taken the positions this past year, it was, it was great. And they work really well as a team and they've really helped the, the studio um, come into its own and, and have its own sort of uh, flavor, if you will, <laughs> which has been great. What was your the focus of your assistantship? My first year, I taught the percussion methods course to the music ed majors. Um, and then my second year, so last year, I was the studio TA where I helped um, uh, the main thing I did was I helped organize practice rooms, um, but then I also helped the, uh, Ian and Doug, um, since that was also their first year, they had a lot of questions about, you know, uh, how did things run last year? How did things kind of work within the school of music, those sorts of things. So I was a lot of, uh, answering questions and helping them in any way. And then I also helped, um, our percussion coordinator, um, Jonathan Smith, who helps, uh, coordinate rentals and, uh, gear maintenance, and those sorts of things. So uh, a wide gamut of, of things, along with helping with um, studio culture and then just answering any questions that members might have or something like that. Do you ever peek into the uh, marching bands out there? <laughs> I was never involved with MMB. I, I uh, had worked with um, John Pasquale a little bit. I, I'm on, I was on stage crew, so I worked a lot of concerts. So um I had interacted with him through through that job a little bit, um, but I never worked with MMB a whole lot. Um, I had a couple of friends that were in it. I knew a lot of the band grads, and we had just had conversations because it was a different type of, of marching band than I had ever been involved in. It was, uh, uh, you know, they march high step. They're a little bit more of a show band. So I, I had never taught or been a part of something like that. So I would ask a lot of questions to my uh, the band grads. I asked a lot of questions to them. So, um, But no, it was cool. It's really cool. So I finish up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Nice. And first question is, what's an issue in percussion education, percussion research? Um, it could be also uh, in, the, in the band field since you're very active there. But something that gets really gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. When people don't use a metronome on the marching field <laughs> hands down <laughs> hands down the doctor beat with yes. the speaker yes you or, need to use metronome 
on the field. Or Emily is just not – she cannot respect your program. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> well, it's just frustrating. You got to teach your students how to play in time, y'all. Like, <laughs> how are you going to do that with just nothing or a gawk block? Like, that's not going to do it. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Just a metronome. Just a simple little metronome. Yeah. There you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Going into the non-percussion related questions, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Probably the vest that I wore when I worked at Walmart as a cake decorator. Nice. Yep. And it smells disgusting. <laughs> how how is that possible? <laughs> um <laughs> well, so me so the at least the like bakery was right next to the deli yeah so and i ended up having to go over to the deli for whatever reason and so it just smelled like the chicken that they were baking all the time and like (laughs) the food at the hot bar they were making and it yeah anyway what a time i (laughs) greater at walmart (laughs) i don't feel like man what's that Summer jobs, man. <laughs> I, I was. Uh, I feel like I don't have to ask the question. Your worst job growing up? Oh, worst is, job? Is that is that is that not that's not it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It might have been. So I think it's a tie between that job and the job I had this past summer as a customer service associate for Amazon. Oh. Yeah, I worked from home. And I specialized in Kindles and Prime Video and Fire TVs and tablets. And I had to answer the phone and help people either troubleshoot their device or troubleshoot Prime Video in some way. And it got very frustrating sometimes, as you can imagine. (laughs) So I think it's a tie between Walmart Cake Decorator and Amazon Customer Service Associate. Wow. I mean, how often did you just go, can you just plug it back in and try like unplug, replug? Was that a frequent, mm-hmm. a frequent solver of, of problems? Mm-hmm. There were lots of times when I was like, maybe we should just turn it off and turn it back on. And then it fixed the issue. And they were like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I would have never thought to do that. And I'm like, I'm so glad that I was here to help you. <laughs> It was great. <laughs> but it was a job, you know. It was a job and I got to work from home, so I can't really complain, but What what were your hours? During training, I was working from 9 to 6 and then I got to choose my own schedule. Um so I just worked uh 8 to 5 Tuesday through Saturday. So it wasn't terrible. Definitely could have been worse. Mhm. During those hours were you were you actually on the phone the whole time or were there breaks? Most of the time. So yeah. So working from home, everything was through a computer. Um, but I was on the phone. Like when I was available, I was pretty much on the phone. There was very little downtime. Um, but I would have two 15 minute breaks and then I would have a one hour lunch. So yeah. Got it. Something. Yeah. Something. Something. <laughs> Next question, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh, gosh. Yes, they definitely have. And it was my high school students that I taught at uh, in South Carolina where I student taught. 
um, they would make fun of me all the time because I would get really excited if they did something right. And I like get excited as in like, I would yell at them and be like, yes, that was it. Do it again. And they would make fun of me all the time for that. So classic high school students Mm -hmm. love them dearly. (laughs) And, and you, you'd say something like, it's not that loud, is it? And they'd go, yeah. 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 No, once they got comfortable enough and like realized how far they could go, they would actually just make fun of me, yeah. like my face. And I was like, all right, y'all. Nope. <laughs> nope. About to make your life terrible. Here we go. Right. <laughs> no, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, it was all in good fun. Yeah. These paradiddle warm ups are not going to play themselves. So if That's you right. get back That's to right. <laughs> what's okay. a great movie and what's a terrible movie? A great movie, Silence of the Lambs, is a really great movie. Mm-hmm. And I, so full disclosure, I hate scary movies to no end. Mm-hmm. And I was like really nervous to see this movie, but my friends were like, it's not scary. It's just like thought provokingly creepy. And I was like, okay, cool. I can do that. But after watching the movie, I was like, I want to watch it again. Like, I want to watch it again right now. It was so good. Um, I haven't seen it in a while. Um, let's see. In a terrible movie, I feel like I'm going to make a lot of people mad, but I didn't like Napoleon Dynamite. I really didn't like that movie. <laughs> I was like, I don't see why this is funny. <laughs> but all my friends were like, no, it's so funny. <laughs> so funny. But anyway, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's it's one that I don't know. It's been a long time since I've watched oh, it, yeah. and I don't know how – I don't know how I'd, how I'd react to it. Now I feel like what I what I'm more the, the what's more interesting is not the Napoleon stuff, but it's the Uncle Rico. Oh yeah, like, yeah. Like, I was like, you know, like age well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but like him, him throwing. I think it's like there's memes about him when whenever there's like a quarterback change at uh-huh. at, a, at, a, at the NFL, and then they're like, yeah. well, maybe it's time for Uncle Rico. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> so good. So that that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fair point. Fair point. All right. What is your go-to karaoke song? Ooh. Either Katy Perry's Firework mm-hmm. or Bon Jovi Living on a Prayer. Hands down. Hands down. But that also depends on the sobriety level, I think. <laughs> well, I was going to say, firework is, can be – those are some tough vocal lines. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not pretty. I didn't say it was pretty. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, you got to – that's the thing like if you are – if yeah, depending on the sobriety level, trying to trying to hit those, those upper hits, it's uh-huh. like – it's almost like, is she going to make it? <laughs> right? Will she go for it? Yes. <laughs> is it good? No. Is she just is she just gonna scream on him? Yes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, that's what karaoke is. You just have fun. <laughs> that's right. No, that's some good that's some good stuff there. Yeah. All right. What is a favorite book? So I'm not a big reader, um, but when I do read, I think one of my favorite books is um it's a book by Simon Sinek, um, and it's called Start with Why. Mm. I enjoy books that help me become a better teacher or that help me just become a little bit better of a person. Um, and this was a book that I was actually introduced to through drum corps. And, um, he has a video, um, of this that he gave at a Ted talk, um, basically explaining the, the, 
concept of the book starting with why and um and it's a book and just a concept that revolves around the why you do something sort of thing and for me the the question of why you get up in the morning um has always been a big one for me um and it's always helped me kind of recenter myself in moments of maybe uncertainty and really helped me you know ground myself in the this is why you're doing this. And even though maybe life is a little weird right now, just don't forget that. So, um, but would highly recommend it. If you want a snippet of it, go watch that video. It's on YouTube. Just type in Simon Sinek, start with why, and, and, and you'll see it. Um, but he, he uses a lot of business jargon, but it can definitely be directly related to um, the music field in a lot of ways. And, and something that I use as a teaching, a teaching tool in a lot of my leadership clinics and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, Simon Sinek, start with why definitely, definitely one of my favorite books. Awesome. I believe that was a, the, um, that the PAS leadership council or whatever, they have like a reading group and that was one of their books. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think, I think Andrew, Andrew Richardson, I think mm -hmm. he told me about that. Um, and I was like, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, it's cool. a good one. Awesome. All right. Since we, we talked about your um, your outside shooting prowess and your um, your <laughs> ability to, to run fast, uh -huh. um, do you have a sports fandom? So growing up, I was a big fan of the men's basketball team at Chapel Hill. Ugh, um, okay. I know, I know. Well, I, it's better. Listen, <laughs> listen, it, you didn't say Duke, so it's okay. Oh, no, no, yeah. definitely not. Definitely okay. not. So um, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know if I have like a team that I root for. I just love college football in general. Um, I love, uh, my grandfather was a big fan of the Atlanta Braves. Um, mm -hmm. so I think if I had to have a team, it'd probably be the Braves for baseball. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think I have a, a, a strong I don't think it, I have a strong, not a passion. It sounds yeah. Like. I don't yeah. I don't think I have a strong pull towards one school or team or the other. But yeah, gotcha. I just love it. Love sports in general. Well, you had, I mean, Florida State and Michigan uh -huh. are two of the hotbeds of college football. That's for sure. Right. That's right. Yeah, I still need to go next year. I'm going to try and come up for a game in the big house since I wasn't able to my first year. And then the second year there weren't fans. So yeah. fingers crossed, hopefully this year I can, can go to a game. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe it'll be whenever Michigan plays Ohio state and you, and you won't die. That would be That's it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We'll see. Right. We'll see. <laughs> that, that would be a, that would be an, an odd, that would be an interesting one to go to as oh. your first, if, if yeah. that, because like there's not like where would you go after that for intensity? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> maybe maybe like Auburn, Alabama. That's right. the only other like big one that I can think of. But yeah, who knows? Yeah, and I I, I do want to ask an annoying question, which you probably that this probably comes up somewhere, which is about you don't have a discernible Southern accent, even though you went you were in Asheville and Greenville. That's right. Is yep. that a is that a conscious choice? Uh, I don't know. Like growing up Asheville, it, at least when I go back and I talk to people that I grew up with or just I hear people in general, I don't hear a big Southern accent. Um, but especially in Greenville, I do. 
But I think it was also a little bit of Furman. I didn't hear a whole lot of a Southern accent. Um, and then definitely not in Florida and then definitely not here in Michigan. Right. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I can definitely – listen, I can turn it on when I want to, but <laughs> for most of the time I don't. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. That's that's the speed Southern. I like it. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the high-pitched speed Southern. I like uh-huh. it. Excellent. Bet, okay, because you did a lot of sports. Okay. Uh, what is your best – your best injury or I would, and I phrase this as best non-life threatening injury. Okay. Let's see. I haven't really gotten hurt a whole lot. Um, I would dislocate my shoulder a lot in basketball for whatever reason. (laughs) I have no idea why, but it happened a lot, but I think, I don't know if it's the best or the funniest, but there was one game in high school that, um, I went up for a layup and I made the shot, but the person defending me came down and like hit me in the face and my contact fell out. So I only had one contact in and (laughs) I remember like running back on defense and being really confused of like, wait, what? And then I realized what had happened and I was trying to get my coach's attention, but they weren't paying attention to me. (laughs) I was like, I can't see. (laughs) I really can't see. But thankfully there was only like two minutes left in the game. So it was fine. But yeah, I remember coming out and and my coach going, what, what's the matter? And I was like, I lost a contact. And she was like, Oh no. (laughs) But yeah, that was funny. Not really an injury, but it, but it was funny. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that works. That's good. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's say you meet someone and they're talking and they say, what's something that if someone you meet someone and they say like, oh, I like this, Uh whether it's like something pop culture or obscure and you're like, we're good. Okay. What's that for you? Dachshunds. My love for dachshunds is very deep. (laughs) So if this person likes dogs and if they like weenie dogs – we're going to be just fine. I grew up with dachshunds my whole life. So like, I remember our, my first dog that we got, um, his name was Fritz and I picked him out and I was like four years old and my parents and I went to the pet store and I picked him out because he was the one that peed on the floor. I was like, I want that one. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I grew up with dachshunds my whole life. Love them. I am going to get one hopefully in the next year or so, but definitely, definitely dogs but specifically weenie dogs. Wow. You just like the, the little tiny legs and they're so cute. They're so <laughs> cute. They're little legs. Yeah. They need help like getting up on anything. That's right. Yeah. We, in the times that it did snow in Asheville, we ended up having to like carve out a path for them to be able to go to the bathroom <laughs> because we would literally lose them in the snow if they didn't. And it was the funniest thing in the world. You just see their tail yeah. just like wandering around the yard and you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> they're never going to get back. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely dachshunds. It's like a shark fin or something like that. That's to, right. To yeah. It's a homing beacon. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. All right. Next up, what is either the strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? Oh, gosh. Probably there was one show. I don't remember where we were, but it was my age out. And we were at some fancy high school 
and they didn't want to put the podiums on their track for whatever reason. So they had pieces of plywood like on the track for our podiums to go on. But the way that they bowed, they bowed up instead of down. So I remember getting on my podium and just bouncing. I felt like I was on a trampoline and I was like, oh no, because <laughs> I moved around a lot on my podium during the show. There was definitely one moment where I almost like face planted into the front ensemble. Like I almost fell off my podium. I came very close, like had to stop conducting to catch my balance. But yeah, probably, probably that. And then I'm trying to think, Oh, yeah. I remember we were at Laster High School. This was at FSU my second year, and we were playing um, uh, Zanakis's uh, Pleiades, um, and we were playing Poe. And <laughs> I remember that we got to the point that's unison on the bongos, um, and I, like, hit the bongo, and my stick broke in half in the, like, top part flew up and behind me and thankfully it was the moment where like we were just at the end of the unison part so I could stop playing for a second and I'm so thankful that I put my stick bag right next to me because I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't because I had like a dagger in one end and my stick in the other so I was very thankful I could just put it down casually and pick up a pair of sticks and it was fine but Oh, yeah, Poe and I, Poe and I have broken a bongo head, broken a stick, that piece, something always goes wrong in that piece, but. <laughs> did you, when it happened, did you, did you like literally like look up, like, no, like watching, no. or you just like, it went and you just like immediately got another stick? Well, I didn't even realize it happened until I looked down and I realized it like it felt different and it sounded different. And I noticed I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and yeah, but at that point, like the unison part was over and I was like, OK, here we go. <laughs> so just got a pair of like drum set sticks or something. But oh, man. Yeah, that was funny. And then I saw it on the recording. The stick literally just went. Ooh. <laughs> it was very funny to watch. But nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. And last question, Emily, what one piece of art, whether it's music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, any of those, et cetera, has impacted you the most recently? Oh, wow. I don't know if you consider this art, but food most recently has. My partner is a wonderful cook. And she makes the best food I've ever had. And I, um, I remember growing up, it, uh, food and just cooking in general was very familial. And it was a, a group effort. And it was the thing that at the end of the day, we always knew we were going to sit around the table and have a meal together. For me, that's something that um, I see uh, a lot in her cooking and just the love that she has for it. And I am so thankful every day to be able to come home and know that that thing that I grew up with, I'm still going to have in the form of food and in the form of, you know, it's, it's, it's a family thing. It's, a, it's a, not just one person making a meal, but... It, it's a thing that brings us all together. So I would definitely say food, food has been the most recent thing um, 
Yeah, it's beautiful. That's great. Any specific dish or item that, like, just perfect? Chocolate chip cookies. Simple, but yeah. Yeah, there's just something about a chocolate chip cookie that if it's made well, it's a good time. It's a good time. (laughs) And then you have 18 of them and you're like, why do I feel so – why do I feel bad right now? That's right. But if they're small, it's fine. You can get away with eating 18. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Awesome. All right, Emily, we are done. Yeah. Thank you so much, Pete. This was great. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for reaching out. I'm really uh, thankful for this opportunity to be able to, to be on your show. A total pleasure to chat with Emily. I look forward to catching up with her as her career moves along. And I look forward to hopefully getting to meet her in person soon. As stated, you may check out her consortium on her website at emilysalgado.com. And many of the folks we talked about on the show, I have already interviewed. So check out the links for those interviews in the show notes. All right. This week's rave is the 2018 film, You Were Never Really Here starring Joaquin Phoenix and written and directed by Lynn Ramsey. Joaquin Phoenix has been in a number of good films over the years, including but not limited to The Master, Gladiator, and Joker, for which he won a Best Actor Oscar and followed it with a pretty bizarre acceptance speech, something you can look up on your own. Lynn Ramsey is a Scottish director who's likely best known for another small film like this, 2011's We Need to Talk About Kevin, another similarly devastating film, that particular one about a mother trying to handle her son becoming, for lack of a better word, a psychopath. In You Were Never Really Here, Joaquin Phoenix plays a veteran soldier who is dealing with pretty severe PTSD. He lives with his mother, who's going through dementia, And he's a hired hitman whose job, in quotes, is to rescue young girls who've been stolen and put into the seedy underage underworld. I'll be honest, it's a relatively bizarre and it is a difficult movie to watch, but there is a lot to recommend. One, Joaquin Phoenix is, again, riveting in his role. He bulked up in muscle and weight and became this hulking and at times maniacal figure who is clearly traumatized by both his war experiences and some of his upbringing. Many times images and portions are clearly happening in his head, and other times it's less obvious, and it purposely keeps the viewer off-center. Two, Lynn Ramsey's direction is really special. Through the use of a lot of jump cuts, sudden volume changes in audio, glitchy and off-kilter songs, and this lack of clarity about what's really happening, you really get put into Joaquin Phoenix's mind and see his own lack of clarity of what's happening in his life. And three, the best aspect of this movie is the score. And it gave me the biggest aha moment 
once I saw in the credits who composed the music. There were lots of jump cuts, funky electronic figures, very pop-style oriented music. There was a motive that sounded like the opening of Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. And there was a lot of distorted and chromatic string music. I loved all of it. And then the name showed up, Johnny Greenwood. Yes, Radiohead's lead guitarist and one of their primary songwriters. And Johnny Greenwood is someone who's built a second career scoring movies, primarily for Paul Thomas Anderson, which includes The Master, again, also starring Phoenix, There Will Be Blood, and Phantom Thread. If you're in the mood for a challenging, messed up film with a tremendous film score, then check out You Were Never Really Here. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time.